Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Massell. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we spend so much time focusing on American healthcare and the huge transformations underway here. Sometimes we like to aim our lens globally. So much transformation is happening really around the world. Well, indeed, there is, Mark. And while the Affordable Care Act and the rise of technology and medicine is dramatically changing the landscape here, the same thing's happening in China. That country is developing rapidly across the board, and they've announced an initiative to overhaul their nation's health care system. That's going to be a massive undertaking, considering the size of the population. Because the population is roughly 1.4 billion people, and that's a lot of people to care for. The current system has cobbled traditional Chinese medicine, combined with the growing trend of modern medical training. Well, the Chinese government has announced an initiative to modernize the nation's health infrastructure. They're planning to double the number of the nation's doctors by 2020, and they've announced a five-year roadmap to improving the nation's health care infrastructure, planning to put in place a system of electronic health records to develop a cloud-based system to store all that new health care data. And as you can imagine, the world's health industry vendors are lining up for what's expected to be a trillion-dollar project. It may be of interest uh, to see how the Chinese health reform unfolds in the coming years. Well, of course, China is a country with far more resources than many other parts of the world where health is impacted by the effects of extreme poverty. And our guest today is one of the world's leading experts on global health. Dr. Jeffrey Sachs is the director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and director of the UN's Millennium Development Goals, as well as a new initiative, the Sustainable Development Goals. He's a terrific thought leader in this area, and we're looking forward to that conversation. Indeed, Lori Robinson, though, stops by, as she always does, on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Health coverage and hospitals. The Cleveland Clinic calls the ACA a win-win, noting since the passage of the Affordable Care Act and two rounds of open enrollment, the percentage of uninsured seeking care at that hospital is down significantly, 40 percent in two years. Cleveland Clinic reports its charity care spending is down by about $70 million. Hospital officials credited the federal health law for the improvement, saying the decrease in charity care is primarily attributable to the increase in Medicaid patients due to the expansion of Medicaid eligibility in Ohio. The 40 percent drop spotlights a national trend on how payments are changing for all providers since the health law rolled out. The Medicaid expansion and subsidies that help some lower-income people purchase policies in the new insurance marketplaces. Another stalled action in Congress means more time to guess about the future of the repeal of the SGR. The House reached bipartisan deal to end the almost two decades old sustainable growth rate formula, which compensates providers treating Medicare patients. The Senate failed to act on the dock fix before the two-week recess and won't be back in business till April 13th. It's expected when they return, there'll be more haggling over amendments to the bill before final action is taken. If you're a United Healthcare customer, beware of patronizing emergency rooms out of network. The insurance carrier is reducing its reimbursement for emergency care for those not in the network. The company saying it was concerned about out-of-network clinicians seeking excessive compensation. 
And if you're in the hospital for any reason, you're obliged to wear the dreaded hospital gown. The Cleveland Clinic and several other hospitals around the country are looking at redesigning the traditional open back flap design, saying they're bad for patient morale and can be demoralizing. Cleveland Clinic has even solicited the talents of designer Diane von Furstenberg, a designer of the iconic wrap dress. She's taken that same approach to the hospital gown. This wrap hospital gown ties in the front, is made of softer fabric, and comes with pockets. Early beta testing, patients uniformly love the new design. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, as well as the uh, Catalet Professor of Sustainable Development and Health Policy and Management, world-renowned economist. Dr. Sachs is also key advisor to UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon on the Millennium Development Goals and is the director of the UN Sustainable Development Network. He is the author of several bestsellers, including The End of Poverty, Commonwealth and the Price of Civilization. His latest book, The Age of Sustainable Development, has just been released, and he's won numerous distinctions, being named twice to Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential world leaders. He earned his undergraduate, master's, and PhD from Harvard. Dr. Sachs, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Great. Jeff, you've had a interesting perch at the intersection of global development and its impact on health and well-being of the global population. And you've been a key advisor to numerous countries around the world, as well as the United Nations, on how best to achieve success with the Millennium Development Goals, which has a triple aim to improve global access to education, eliminate poverty, and reduce income equality. Uh, But it also has a very strong focus on uh, improving global health, with a focus on eliminating preventable maternal and child mortality and tackling malaria, HIV, and AIDS. So we're now at the end of that 15-year process, and the target date, 2015, is here. Can you tell our listeners how far we've come in meeting those targets? This has been a good stretch, not as good as it could have been, but it's been a 15-year period in which many diseases uh, that are ancient scourges like malaria have been brought uh, partly under control in which uh, childbirth has become safer. The mortality rates of young children have declined pretty significantly around the world and in which the science of public health has really been demonstrated time and again, meaning that when we have put the effort into health and disease control, we've gotten good results. I would say the main message of the Millennium Development Goal period is if you invest in health, you'll get better health as a result. We have tools that are quite powerful to help people have healthier, safer lives. The big problem has been that for the poor, uh, these tools have been out of reach, and the purpose of the MDGs has been to bring them into reach. Well, Jeff, that's a great support for the old saying that health is wealth. But you are one of the first global economists to put the data together that illustrates how this absolutely does apply to global economic development. 
Your early study showed that in places where scourges like AIDS and malaria were prevalent, economic growth was non-existent. So tell, tell us more about this health-wealth connection uh, and why it's so vital that investment in health is required before we're going to likely meaningfully impact some of the great global economic inequities. I don't know about you, but when I'm uh, down with a little cold or a, a fever, even something mild, mm-hmm. my productivity basically goes to zero. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine uh, regions or countries beset by pervasive infections, uh, whether it's worm infections or repeated bouts of malaria or killer uh, diseases. Well, when I was beginning my work in a number of those countries 20 or 25 years ago, I was completely stunned, actually, coming from a rich country and with the idea that when people are sick, they go to a doctor, Mm -hmm. uh, to be in places where when people are sick, they die Mm -hmm. uh, because there are no doctors around and uh, often dying of causes that are treatable for under a buck, for example. Children dying because there isn't the the $1 pediatric dose of the malaria cure. It's shocking. Mm -hmm. I started, uh, because of that sense of bewilderment, I would say, 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, to ask myself the question, uh, what's what's the consequence of all of this? And began research that you mentioned on showing just how devastating uh, these epidemics are for economic development. Well, then, Fifteen years ago, at the start of this millennium period, I was asked to chair a commission for the World Health Organization on exactly this question. And we found that, indeed, investing in health not only is obvious from the point of view of well-being, it's obvious from the point of view of helping impoverished places get out of a trap of disease leading to poverty, poverty leading to more disease. A lot of those ideas were then incorporated in the Millennium Development Goals, and in particular in the creation of new funding institutions like the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. Mm -hmm. It's because of that, putting real resources behind good science and good technology, that these diseases come under control. There's no magic to it. One of the things that was said 15 years ago is, ah, you can't do this in in country X. They're so corrupt. The truth of the matter is that even if the government itself is not one that uh, one would love, there are actual ways to deliver health care that really work. Polio, tremendously down, almost eradicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, AIDS treatment now uh, up to somewhere probably uh, around 13 or 14 million people alive today because they're systematically receiving their medicines. Malaria down by around uh, 60% uh, deaths. So the bottom line is this stuff works. Countries get off their backs uh, when these disease burdens come down. Economic growth can get started again. Agricultural productivity can start to rise. And this fantastic field of public health can really deliver. Jeff, in your uh, most recent book, The Age of Sustainable Development, you start off by providing a framework to understand what sustainable development is and then explore how we can achieve these goals moving forward. Also, it's a textbook for anyone interested in taking your massive online course 
But I, I do want to focus in on uh, sort of the bigger context. Your mission started off with uh, former U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan on the Millennium Development Goals. And now with Ban Ki-moon as uh, Secretary General, you're focusing on sustainable development goals. And maybe just give this larger context of how this is working for our listeners. Sustainable development says keep your eye on three things. First, the economy. Second, the health of the society. Is society becoming more unequal? So what is called social inclusion or social capital is the second part of uh, sustainable development. And then the third, don't let the economy wreck the environment. And unfortunately, the world economic system over the last quarter century has been churning out so much pollution, so much carbon dioxide coming from burning coal, oil, and gas, and so many other chemical changes that, as I think most people now really understand well, we're actually changing the climate, we're changing the ocean chemistry, we're destroying the habitat of other species, all very dangerous. So sustainable development's the idea that we need a holistic approach for our world economy. Uh, And the way we summarize it is economic, social, and environmental objectives. And that's why the UN member states, the 193 governments in the world, agreed three years ago that this coming September, the world will adopt new goals that they will call Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, to put sustainable development into the world's consciousness. I've written uh, the book, The Age of Sustainable Development, to help explain the concept and how it can actually be achieved. You've noted that this work that's been done over the last 15 years, there really has been this remarkable progress. And you noted when you started this work in the late 1990s, only a very small portion of a percentage of the millions of HIV-infected Africans were receiving any kind of effective medical intervention. Malaria infections were on the rise. Globally, infant mortality was at 12.6 million per year in 1990, down to 9.7 million in 2000. And you've touched on the, uh, the absolute appreciation we need to have for the science of public health. Maybe highlight some of the interventions uh, as you look back, that brought about the results from that watershed moment when a global commitment was made to tackle these huge health challenges. For me, the AIDS and malaria control efforts have been remarkable to see from a position in which both diseases were running completely out of control to a situation where we're really within sight of beating both of those diseases. Malaria, for me, has been a vivid example of the potential triumph of public health. Back in 2000, there was almost no control effort. And yet the malaria specialist that I talked to back then said, of course, this is a controllable disease. We have insecticide-treated nets that repel the mosquitoes, and we have a new first line of medicine that can actually cure a bout of malaria. And part of it was creating a new uh, institution, the Global Fund, uh, to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria to help finance the battle. Part of it was to ensure that every household in Africa that needs it and can't afford it should get a mosquito net so that they would have some protection. 
And since the battle to get that done, it took a number of years to convince the powers that be that uh, that was a good idea, hundreds of millions of nets have been distributed. Then the scientists came up with a better diagnostic for malaria. It used to be that you needed someone looking through a microscope, mm-hmm. and that was a very a difficult thing to organize to have a trained microscopist and have the lab equipment and the clinic might be 10 miles away and so forth. And then clever scientists came up with a rapid diagnostic test where just one drop of blood on a little strip would change color Mm -hmm. if the person is infected with malaria. Well, all of a sudden you could diagnose the disease out in the village and in a poor person's uh, farm and here are the medicines to treat you. Then came the mobile phone revolution so that you could now have an outreach worker with a backpack that had the rapid diagnostic test and the new medicines and a phone back to the clinic to get advice if necessary. So a whole system has developed for community-based malaria control. We've seen malaria deaths come down, as I mentioned, by around 60%. They should be down to zero. In other words, we should have 100%, but we don't have the funding and the organization in place to really drive it down to zero right now. And that's why I'm calling for a scaling up Mm -hmm. of our success stories, funding community health workers, for example, who can get us to the 100% cure rate. We're speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, as well as professor of sustainable development and health policy and management. Dr. Sachs is also a key advisor to U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on the Millennium Development Goals and is director of the U.N. Sustainable Development Network, as well as commissioner of ITU, UNESCO's Broadband Commission for development. And Jeff, let's take a look at the proliferation of mobile technology in the developing world. And it's not only become a vital tool in uh, filling enormous gaps in the care delivery system in the developing world. It's also a vital tool in economic development as well. And while we focus in on healthcare apps, uh, we've kept a keen eye on the, the banking uh, world in Kenya. The M-Pesa, the mobile money transfer platform, has been very exciting. How has mobile technology like this enhanced your work in advancing health for all? It's just the greatest single piece of technology in our recent times. And for poor people isolated in rural areas, no banks, no ability to find transport in an emergency, the transformation that's come with the mobile phone revolution, in my view, has been the biggest boost of all to the economic development of the poorest parts of the world. This is really the leapfrog technology. I'm convinced that smart broadband is going to bring education and quality education to the poorest places in the world. Now they can have the world knowledge if we get a bit organized for them to have a a screen, some kind of device, uh, and, and wireless broadband. I'm convinced that it is going to transform healthcare delivery, and by the way, not only in poor countries, Mm -hmm. but in our countries as well, because uh, now uh, you can do regular sensing of blood pressure or some other health indicators to uh, help patients stay alive or to alert a doctor. In poor countries uh, where 
there may not be a radiologist uh, anywhere nearby. Now with telemedicine, uh, that radiologist could be halfway around the world. It doesn't matter. The banking, which you mentioned, the M-Pesa, came to Kenya before it came to Manhattan. Apple Pay is trying to do what Kenyans have been doing for years, which is uh, to easily use their uh, mobile devices uh, as uh, regular payment systems. And for people who had never stepped foot in a bank and had no prospect of stepping (laughs) foot in a bank, they're doing normal banking and uh, electronics payments. So it's exciting. And, And for me, it really is the key for the future on almost everything uh, that we need, whether it's healthcare delivery, education delivery, uh, business development, and better government systems as well. And so I think that uh, we're going to see big benefits uh, from this in many, many parts of our societies. Well, Jeff, you were just part of an event that happened here in our home state of Connecticut. And in your presentation at the Global Health and Innovation Conference at Yale University, you spoke to perhaps one of the greatest threats to global health in the coming decades, and that's climate change. With something like 97% of the world's scientific community saying global warming is real and it's here, a minority of political and economic interests continue to run interference on reaching a global consensus on how best to tackle the critical issue. But based on your research, can you outline for us the real threat to global health that's created by climate change? Thanks for asking, because this is so crucial that we take some preventative steps at this point to head off what could be real calamities. I think uh, all of us know, almost all of us, except maybe if we're the CEO of a big oil company and don't want to know that climate change is real, that it is intensifying, that our climate system has become a lot more unstable than it was in the past. Heat waves, uh, even these awful cold spells that we've had in the northeast of the United States are related to the derangement of climate coming from the greenhouse gases that our modern world economy pumps into the atmosphere at huge amounts. My God, we've already raised the world's temperatures. We've already uh, instigated more extreme hurricanes and typhoons. We're having more droughts and heat waves in many places in the world. The thing we haven't done is uh, address this problem coherently. And we're now at this moment, this tipping point. And the reason we're at the tipping point is that the public knows this is true, but the propaganda in uh, some of the corporate press, like the Wall Street Journal, unfortunately, and the politics in Washington have uh, prevented action. Here you have about 70% of Americans saying we should do something But we have a Congress uh, that is in the hands of uh, big oil and big coal, which has been stopping action. And I think we're about to make a breakthrough. And uh, we frankly believe our own eyes, not not what we're being uh, peddled by vested interests. The what to do in broad terms is straightforward, but not simple. And that's to change the primary energy sources for the world from the coal, oil, and gas to renewable and low-carbon energy like wind and solar power, hydropower, and other technologies. That's feasible. It is a, a charge and a responsibility over a course of two or three decades. 
it doesn't sit too easily with the big oil because it means using less of what they produce and using more of other things. We'd actually not only have a safer planet, uh, we'd have a cleaner air and a higher quality of life if we make the transition to a low-carbon, smart energy system. We're going to make this transition, but it just means that some of the old vested interests have to get out of the way so that we can build the new economy. We've been speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University and a key advisor to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on the Millennium Development Goals. You can also learn about his work by going to earth.columbia.edu or to jeffsachs.org. That's S-A-C-H-S. Jeff, uh, thank you for the work you do, for your determination and persistence in making the world healthier, and for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Well, really great to be with you. Thanks so much. And these are world issues, and I'm delighted that more and more of the world is getting involved. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Obama recently said that the Affordable Care Act is reducing the overall cost of health care, including putting, quote, $1,800 in people's pockets. But the president's $1,800 figure isn't a reduction in insurance premiums, but rather it's the difference between the cost of the average employer-sponsored plan in 2014 and what the average premium would have been if based on average rate increases from 2000 through 2010. The calculations were done by White House economic advisors, but even they say the Affordable Care Act isn't responsible for the full $1,800 difference. Employer-sponsored premiums have been growing at low rates for the past few years, and the White House Council of Economic Advisors looked at what premium growth would have been since 2010 if the growth rates had been as high as they were in the decade before. That calculation showed the average family premium for employer-sponsored plans would be $1,800 more than it actually is. But does the ACA get credit for that, as Obama said it should? It could be responsible for some of the slower growth, but experts largely attribute it to the sluggish economy. The Council of Economic Advisors said, quote, a significant fraction of the slowdown in healthcare inflation could be linked to the ACA, but it didn't say how much. Also, the $1,800 difference is the total premium amount that would have been paid by both employers and employees. So not all of the $1,800 would amount to money in people's pockets. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives.
Depression is extremely common among adolescents in this country, but it's often hard to differentiate between typically teen angst and a clinical condition that requires more immediate intervention. Unfortunately, a teen's level of depression isn't realized until they take drastic action. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds, a population that almost ubiquitously uses texting as a form of communication. Texting is a fantastic way to communicate with young people. So it has huge open rates and it's really fast, but it has this one weird side effect where uh, we're the only brand that they text with. You know, you really only text with your family and friends. And so, and us, and do something. And so because people texted with us, they felt really comfortable. And um, they started sending us things that were shocking, like, I don't want to go to school tomorrow because I'm being bullied or about being cutting. Nancy Lublin is CEO of Crisis Text Line, an instant texting service designed to encourage teens in crisis to reach out for help, which they receive instantly. All they have to do is text the numbers 741-741. So if you're someone who's in pain, you text us, and then the counselor on the other side is not working from a phone. They're on a screen that almost looks kind of like Facebook or Gmail. When messages come in with certain keywords in them, they automatically get tagged as high risk. So we don't take them chronologically. Um, If you're at risk for suicide, you're automatically bumped up in the queue and you're like a code red. You get flagged in our system. Since she founded Crisis Texts, the word has spread like wildfire. They receive an average of 15,000 texts per day from kids experiencing everything from typical teen dilemmas, such as a fight with a boyfriend, to kids contemplating suicide. And the supervisor would determine whether or not this person um, with the imminent harm whether they have A, a plan, and B, the means, then we will trigger an active rescue. Crisis text line, an instant, age-appropriate intervention, available free of charge and 24-7 to give kids in crisis a lifeline and lead them to help they need. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.